The Interchange is brought to you by Hitachi ABB Power Grids. Are you building a renewable power plant? Looking for a battery storage system? Thinking about how to integrate renewables onto your grid? Hitachi ABB Power Grids is your choice. Meet your goals, unlock new revenue streams, maximize renewable integration, lower carbon emissions. All with Power Grids innovative control and automation technology. For more, visit the link right there in the show notes. The Interchange is also brought to you by Long Yi Solar, the world's leading solar technology company. Long Yi supplies high-efficiency monocrystalline solar modules to all market segments and project types in the U.S. A global market leader, Long Yi has unmatched bankability, quality, and performance validated by third-party laboratories and has a breakthrough innovation at both the wafer and module level. With Long Yi products, customers can be sure they're getting technologically advanced, best-in-class solar technology. Everyone was interacting with their fridge, you know, more for the first time and cooking food for their family and being in their homes and thinking about energy efficiency and resource use and trash. And maybe that's a little, you know, funny way of personalizing investors or thinking it's it's silly to think about humans needing to like re-engage with their environment and the, their climate choices. But it made a huge impact on some of these spaces like agriculture and food and mobility and, you know, building an energy usage that saw a real pretty unprecedented upsurgence in investing coming right out of the pandemic. And we'll never know for sure, I suppose, but you can't help but think about investors or people too. 16 billion, that's billion with a B, that's our number this week. And it's the amount of money that has flown into the climate tech space, purely in the form of venture capital, purely in the first half of 2021. Where is all this money going? And where is it coming from? This is The Interchange. I'm Shale Khan. I'm a partner at the venture capital firm, Energy Impact Partners. That role will be particularly relevant to today's conversation. Welcome. Okay, so... I've spent the past 15 years or so at the intersection of climate and technology, but the definition of the sector that I was a part of that whole time has changed a few times. There were the heady days of clean tech back in the late 2000s and then the crash that ensued. And then as clean tech became sort of a dirty word in innovation and venture capital circles, people cast around for other terms. These talked about sustainability and resource efficiency and energy transition tech, and there were a bunch of others. And then a new contender emerged from the ashes, a phoenix arose, and it surpassed anything we could have imagined during that cycle over a decade ago. That phoenix is, of course, climate tech, which is what we're calling this sector today. I actually remember first seeing that term pop up something like three years ago, as the migrant wave from generalist Silicon Valley tech into climate-related tech really began. And I remember wondering whether it might just be another passing wave. Is this the new resource efficiency? But it's pretty clear now that climate tech is here to stay. And in the world of venture capital, the world that I inhabit, climate tech is about as hot as it gets. In pure dollar terms, more money has been flowing into this sector from venture capitalists than almost any other sector. New designated climate tech funds are announced regularly, startup valuations are sky high, and the times are frothy. It's never been a better time to be a climate tech entrepreneur. 
So in times like this, where it is pretty easy to get lost in the noise, I find it's useful to fall back on sweet, sweet, hard data. How much investment are we actually talking about that's going into this sector? Where is it coming from? Who is it going to? And what does that tell founders about how to operate and grow their businesses, given the nature of the environment that they are operating in? Well, look no further, because the intrepid team at Climate Tech VC, which is the leading newsletter on climate and innovation, have gathered and crunched this data. The Climate Tech VC newsletter is an incredible resource that everybody should subscribe to if you don't already. Uh, in addition to being a bi-weekly newsletter with all sorts of good content, it includes a job board if you're interested in finding roles within climate tech. It's got an investor list if you're raising capital and more. CTVC is led by Sophie Purdom and Kim Zhu, who are my guests this week. Sophie is a sustainability business practitioner and an early stage climate investor, in addition to being an intrepid journalist at CTVC. She was also the co-founder of the microbial fertilizer company, Coolabio. And Kim is an investor working with me at Energy Impact Partners, in addition to moonlighting as one of the leaders of Climate Tech VC. So with no further ado, my chat with Sophie and Kim. Kim and Sophie, welcome to The Interchange. Thanks for having us, Shale. It's great to be here. Very excited to have you both uh, for the first collab between The Interchange and Climate Tech VC. Let's, uh, let's start. So you guys have been doing this for, what, a year and a half now, more or less. And so you started tracking the world of venture capital and innovation in, in climate tech in, uh, in early 2020. How did you then and how do you now define climate tech? This is a question I get a lot. Maybe, Kim, I'll have you kick off. Yeah, this is a question we get a lot as well. Um, I think from our side, climate tech started off as anything involving mitigating the effects of climate change. But that definition has really evolved as we see all these climate-related disasters happening. So for me personally, that definition has evolved to anything making um, our world more climate resilient as well. And I think the question we get the most often is how is this different from clean tech? Um, in my eyes, I see clean tech more focused on energy and transportation. Um, that was when kind of the solar and wind renewables revolution happened, whereas climate tech is more involved with comprehensive verticals like food and water, um, industrials, even things like carbon removal and carbon tech. So I think there's just a wider world of um, industries that are related to climate tech versus purely clean tech. I think that's right. Yeah, I've been asked that question a lot too. And I think it's funny. There's, I think there's ways in which um, climate tech is broader than clean tech and there are ways in which it is narrower. So like, for example, you just described Clean tech, at least the activity and the innovation and the funding specifically around clean tech mostly went to energy, actually, and then to a lesser extent to mobility. And now we're looking at agriculture and food and industrial and all this kind of stuff. So in that way, climate tech is broader. On the other hand, uh, clean tech also in its earlier iteration included a bunch of sustainability related stuff that wasn't about climate innovations in water and other types of sustainability where so in this context climate tech is like very narrow it's solutions to solve this one problem which is climate change so i find it interesting the ways in which they overlap each other but have kind of their own categories but nonetheless climate tech clearly a category 
today and obviously a burgeoning one, which is what we want to talk about. Back to the point of the like the difference between clean tech 1.0 and climate tech, I think across the breadth of all of the industries that climate tech touches, there's one unifying metric. This is up for debate, right? But it's arguably CO2 equivalent on a hundred year timescale. And um, drawing all of those crazy comparisons across like you said, water tech versus industrials versus energy versus food. Like, how do you define climate tech? Arguably, it always comes back to, can you put that CO2E um, quantification on it? That is a good point. There's a unifying metric. Though, as Kim said at the beginning, if you want to include things like resilience, climate adaptation, it, you know, inevitably there is scope creep in any exciting sector. So there's bound to be so here too. Totally. Yeah. Like, and, and all of these are so difficult to quantify period, let alone like quantify in scientific terms or dollar terms. Right. Um, particularly now we're talking more about physical risk and where the rubber hits the road, not only on mitigation, but mostly on adaptation. Right. All right. Well, with no further ado, we are here to dig into some data, which is basically my favorite thing to do in the world. Um, And in particular, into this data set that you two have been collecting for more than a year now on venture capital investment in climate tech specifically. And you published some high level, pretty eye popping numbers a few weeks ago. So I want to start by running through those numbers and we'll talk a little bit about what they mean. And then I want to go deeper and figure out what insights we can glean from them. So let's start at the high level. How much money is flowing into, how much venture capital money, rather, is flowing into climate tech right now? And how do we contextualize that versus the past and versus other industries? Yeah, so I think to no one's surprise, there's been a big step change between 2020 and 2021. So within the first half of 2021, there's been $16 billion of capital flowing into early stage climate tech. So making up more than half of that 30 billion within just one half of the year. Um, And over that course of time, there's been 250 deals. So again, pretty much half of that uh, total amount. So the big number is since Kim and I have been tracking climate tech venture deals and very important venture, right? Not all asset classes, but just this early stage um, aspect where innovation is coming out of the lab and getting capitalized early in its journey. Since Q2 of 2020, which big asterisks was the start of the global pandemic, which brought Kim and I together, but also dropped a lot of um, activity in the venture space. Generally, activity kind of fell off, but that's when we started tracking. We're talking about $30 billion of capital that's been flowing into early stage climate tech across 564 deals that we've tracked at Climate Tech VC over the last 18 months. So that's a big number. Let's make some sense of it. So first of all, let's look at it over time. So how much of that was happening in 2020 and how has 2021 looked relative to that so far? Yeah. So I think to no one's surprise, there's been a big step change between 2020 and 2021. So within the first half of 2021, there's been $16 billion of capital flowing into early stage climate tech. So making up more than half of that 30 billion within just one half of the year. Um, And over that course of time, there's been 250 deals. So again, pretty much half of that uh, total amount. 
which reflects a clear acceleration, which I think no one will be surprised by. But the other important caveat here is, as you said, Sophie, second quarter of last year was a big black hole for venture capital in general because it was when the pandemic really hit and everybody put a pause on on doing new deals, at least to a large extent. So let's con- let's um, compare the growth in climate tech over the last year to the growth in VC overall, because presumably everything has come out of the hole uh, with guns a-blazing. Yeah, so we we took the time and looked at, you know, PitchBook's overall tracking of that same year-over-year Q2, Q2 of 2020 to Q2 of 2021 range. And within that time, deal amount of capital funding grew by 132%, so slightly over 100%, whereas comparatively, the CTVC climate tech deal capital funding grew by over 200%. So definitely a focused acceleration within climate tech versus the comparative overall venture market. And that contains, you know, sectors like artificial intelligence or cybersecurity. So pretty exciting to see that, you know, enthusiasm from the investor market within climate tech specifically. It's nice to be able to quantify what we all felt pretty qualitatively even during the pandemic times, right? So this concept, if we can still remember back to when the pandemic was in its early stages, everyone was interacting with their fridge, you know, more for the first time and cooking food for their family and being in their homes and thinking about energy efficiency and resource use and trash and and the um, world and your engagement with the environmental side of it became more tangible. Um, and maybe that's a little, you know, funny way of personalizing investors or thinking it's it's silly to think about humans needing to like re-engage with their environment and the, their climate choices. But um, it made a huge impact on uh, some of these spaces like agriculture and food and mobility and, you know, building and energy usage that saw a real pretty unprecedented upsurgence in investing coming right out of the pandemic. And We'll never know for sure, I suppose, but you can't help but think about investors or people too. And, um, and founders are definitely people too. And they were, um, engaging with these decisions in a pretty like unprecedented way during the pandemic. So I suppose there's some green silver linings, uh, throughout all experiences. I mean, I think that <laughs> it's impossible to quantify this, but I think that the impact of last year's wildfires in the Bay Area on the air quality in the Bay Area, may turn out to be the single most important driving factor of venture capital investment in climate tech because there has been this enormous surge we'll talk more about this in a bit in generalist investors who are not you know only doing climate tech all the time like we are but who have discovered a newfound interest for it and i think it's because it was so immediate to so many of them from not being able to go outside their house for four weeks last year during a pandemic. Yeah. Climate change is unavoidable now, right? Um, and and we all feel it pretty intimately. I'd say I'd say there's an even there's gonna be hopefully a, an even larger inflow after this summer, which is what I've been calling kind of the summer of climate change with not only wildfires, but record setting flooding, heat waves. So yeah, definitely an immediate tangible impact. And and that's not changing, right? If you look at the migration pathways or, or rates of change, even within the continental US, um, some of the areas that are at highest risk of climate change from like what Kim just mentioned, like floods, fires, droughts, those are the areas where humans are, in our infinite wisdom, flocking to 
in droves. Think Miami or areas of Colorado prone to wildfires. The same, same to be said with California or Arizona or Las Vegas, right? Um, all of these areas that are going to be facing the, the physical brunt of climate in the future. So um, uh, the optimistic part of me hopes that experiences um, touching climate hands-on has a, a long-term impact on individuals' understanding of climate and wants to um, and influences changes in behavior and, and involvement with climate. But the realist makes me pretty concerned that uh, people are being put on the, or are choosing, I suppose, in lots of ways to be put on the front lines of climate. And that's nothing to be said for folks that aren't privileged enough to have that decision about choosing to move places. I, I want to f- finish contextualizing the numbers from the first half of this year, because I think the other thing is like $16 billion, obviously a big number, big number by any stretch. But let's uh, consider it in the context of venture capital writ large. How does the $16 billion that we've seen go into climate tech compare to the amount of money, venture capital money that is flowing into other kind of like hot tech venture capital sectors? Yeah. So I think I think one of the other really talked about sectors within venture right now is cybersecurity. Um, and Momentum Cyber put out this really great market review report. And they've tracked $11.5 billion in funding in the first half of 2021. So interestingly enough, it's actually less than the amount we've tracked in climate tech, which I think there's a lot of reasons behind. One is that, you know, climate tech just encapsulates more sectors. It's not just energy, it's transportation, it's food and ag, it's carbon tech, et cetera. And then the other big reason, too, is that I think for a lot of harder tech climate solutions, for example, batteries or EVs, they require a lot more upfront capital in the form of venture investment. So when we look at these growth stage investments, for example, Northvolt and Rivian's raise, which were both, you know, 2 billion plus made up 5 billion in total of that 16 billion amount, it's a lot of capital that's required to stand up factories and to manufacture these technologies versus um, companies in cyber cybersecurity, which are more software centric. And there's a ton of 50 million, 100 million plus rounds, but rarely do we see those, you know, billion dollar scale rounds that are required for these harder tech. And I think that also gets to a really important point about what's going on here, how investors are thinking about climate tech, because the mere existence of a couple of $2 billion private market rounds is an indication that investors, at least the investors in those rounds, believe that there is an outcome, there is an exit pathway that is many multiples of that, right? So you have to believe that these companies, in this case, Rivian and Northfold, but there's a bunch, you know, one step down the list as well, can be 10, 20, 30, 100, 200 billion dollar companies. And in fact, there's you know, reporting right now that uh, Rivian is is looking to IPO later this year at like an $80 billion valuation. That whole phenomenon is relatively new. You know, but for Tesla, basically, there wasn't a $10 billion climate tech company a few years ago. And so one of the things that is both exciting to me and makes me slightly nervous is the idea that, wait a minute, the opportunities for these companies to scale to something really large appears clearer now than it did in the past. And that is driving more and more funding into the space. And as you said, Kim, like these massive mega rounds that can contribute to a big portion of the total. I'd also push us to think about where that capital is coming from, where those giant waves of 
kind of new funding into climate tech mega rounds is um, falling from the sky from, right? Like there's been a trend for a long time towards ESG investing from institutional investors like pension funds that have decided, uh, made a choice to align their investing with with environmental social governance targets. Um, they've been looking for a place to deploy that capital uh, and uh, often later staged. And in this case, we're talking about a battery company and a mobility company, all of which have a pretty obvious climate impact would kind of stand out from the pack as a true place to deploy ESG funding. And so in some ways, I'll just nudge us to think about um, the broader macro environment of these companies are leading first, but are they running towards the money or is the money kind of pushing them forward, right? So which is the chicken and the egg? And, and, and is the, this is a terrible metaphor, but is the, I don't know, whole flock going to be healthy because of it, right? Like, is this, um, true sustainable, uh, organic growth or are we kind of like pumping up the, pumping up the bird with, um, uh, some, some antibiotics? We, we don't do chicken anymore, Sophie. We do synthetic protein now. There so we go. Yeah. I don't think the analogy totally holds up anymore. Um, I do want to come back to where the money is coming from, because that is an interesting question, too. And we want to talk about who these investors are. But first, I think we should talk about where the money is going to, which is, you know, as you said, Kim, this is uh, climate tech is not monolithic. It's it's a you know, the, it shares a common end goal, but it's actually comprised of a whole bunch of different sectors that are all kind of mashed together. So, and, and as you said, the first wave, what we called clean tech at the time was pretty concentrated. I would say it was a lot in, it was almost entirely energy, um, mostly in electricity, but also things like biofuels. So some, you know, energy on the fuel side as well, but mostly in energy and, and a smattering of other things around the periphery. What does it look like today? Like how, what's the breakdown sectorally of this climate tech investment? Yeah, and I would we've actually done the hard work of of trying to break it down, but I would caveat that this is something that's constantly evolving. Um there's kind of the more traditional clean tech sectors as well as emerging sectors. So the way we've broken it down so far are into big buckets. So the first being energy, so within energy, um new kind of generation pathways, energy storage, energy efficiency and HVAC. Then we have the mobility sector, which is, um, you know, things like batteries, EV OEMs, micro mobility. But one example there that's been a challenge in of itself is how to bucket battery companies because they kind of fit within the mobility and energy vertical. So those are just some, I think, challenges with just trying to black and white categorize what is in which sector. Um, I think the third largest bucket has been food and water. So within that, um, agriculture tech, so ways to increase crop yields more sustainably. Alternative and synthetic protein has been a huge one that investors have poured into. Vertical farming, food waste. Um, what I think are emerging but really interesting sectors are what we call uh, climate, so that being climate risk, in insure tech, uh, monitoring and intelligence through satellites or drones, um, even things like air pollution sensors. And then there's the category of carbon tech, which includes carbon tracking and accounting software, carbon offsetting 
software, carbon removal pathways, whether permanent or nature-based. Then we have two more categories, which is the industrial sector. So ways of mining more sustainably, ways of producing industrial, uh, ways of producing industrial-based processes more sustainably, like through steel or cement. And then finally, there's the category of what we call consumer, which are things like ESG investing platforms, um, sustainable packaging, circular economy, those themes kind of fall within that larger bucket. So again, there's no way of perfectly categorizing everything, but I think based off of the deal flow that we were seeing, this was the best way to group everything into buckets and you know label them accordingly. So in percentage terms, how did the dollars break down amongst those sectors in the first half of this year? Yeah, so in terms of dollars of capital funding, Interestingly enough, or not surprisingly, mobility makes up more than 50% of that. Um, Again, Rivian plus Northfolt helps there probably. I mean, but it is, that's, I don't know, it's worth pausing on that for a second. This is where we're seeing a lot of the the late stage exit activity at the moment, right? This is why uh, there's been all the SPAC movement around all the EVOEMs and the charging companies and all that kind of stuff. Like clearly where the dam has broken first in the public markets has been in mobility. So to some extent, it makes sense that that's where a lot of the money is flowing today. Yeah. It's like the, it's like the Tesla effect, essentially that's starting off with the mobility sector. Right. People talk about tiger cubs a lot in the VC world, but like the Tesla cubs, uh, I think is a, is a whole other thing. We wrote a little piece on that too. We were just thinking about that the other day, Shale. Um, I don't know if Elon would appreciate this, but we put out something about the, the Tesla mafia being the, the here and now version of the PayPal mafia from back in the beginning of Silicon Valley. Cause we track these deals, but we also track the founders and where did they come from and what's their kind of like lineage in climate tech. And so many of them, and read the piece to get the quantification on that, but many of them came from, Tesla and from being at Tesla for a series of years. Um, yeah, though, I'd say one of the things I'm most excited about in this space is that, I mean, Tesla's an amazing company and there have been incredible companies spawned out of Tesla alumni. One of the reasons that's true is because Tesla is sort of the first big climate tech company to achieve liquidity for its team. And so that has led a lot of people to then leave and go start companies and things like that. Um, there hadn't been that many others until recently. And now that there are a bunch more, now that we've had a bunch of these exits, I think there's going to be, you know, a huge diaspora from a bunch of these companies to found cool new things. Uh, Tesla just happened to be the first one. I'm with you on that. It's also an excellent signaling factor, right? Again, for that ESG money that's trying to flow in. If you worked at Tesla, it's kind of the equivalent of going to Harvard. Okay. So I interrupted you, Kim, but so more than 50% to mobility thus far, what comes next? Yeah, and then the next large bucket is food and water. So 20%, more than 20% of dollars funded going with, into food and water. All of the categories I had kind of mentioned before, so alternative protein, but also ag tech being a really busy sector that I don't think gets as much attention as um, the amount of funding that goes into is talked about. Then the third after that, unsurprisingly, is energy. So around 15% within Q2 of 2021 has gone into energy. Um, and then following that, I think kind of evenly split has been the consumer, the carbon, climate, and industrial categories. One thing that I find interesting about those splits these days is how misaligned they are with the metric that you mentioned, Sophie, CO2 equivalent, right? Like, not to say these, these sec- every one of them is a big, a gigantic sector with an opportunity for many huge 
outcomes for venture capital. But if what you care about is climate tech uh, and you want your dollar allocation sort of split evenly according to emissions, you would be dedicating a lot more to energy, for example. Energy is responsible for like 70, I mean, ultimately, both between primary energy and final energy, it's like 75% of global emissions. So it's interesting that the venture capital world has sort of collectively turned its eye away from what was the primary thing everybody was investing in in the first cycle, which is energy, toward all these other sectors, mobility in particular, agriculture to a lesser extent. Uh, and we'll, we'll see if that remains the case or whether it's sort of a fluke of just like what's happening in the market today. Those numbers that Kim mentioned with mobility being 50%, right, are of the dollars deployed into uh, any type of round that's below a growth round, right? So basically pre-exit venture and private equity capital. However, you'll be happy, Jale, that the number of deals tells a different story by category. So actually, when we look at the N, energy is the most active sector still at about 33% or so of the... Um, and again, I'm just I'm looking at the uh, deals that have happened this year, where I think this is really the representative story versus during the pandemic slowdown. But um, about a third of the deals are in the energy sector, with then the next most active one being food and water, followed by really close mobility. So a bit of a shift in where the dollars are versus where the deals are. And that's probably due to some sort of cohort effect, right? Of And definitely the Rivian and Northfall effect as well. But um, I'd argue that energy's back with a vengeance. It's, it's just that cohort of businesses tend to be a little bit earlier and therefore garnering slightly lower overall total dollars deployed than the mobility and food and water um, sector at the moment. The other thing that it seems like has been happening is that for any given stage within Series A or B or whatever it is, uh, companies are raising more money in each stage. Has that played out within climate tech? We've actually have a really interesting cut of the data showing the difference between um, Q2 round sizes in 2020 versus 2021. And Series A deals specifically have doubled the average size of same-stage deals from the year before. Growth-stage deals have actually tripled. So in Q2 of 2020, tracked $140 million in terms of average deal size, and now that's ballooned to over $350 million. So just shows the amount of funding coming in, but specifically for those two stages, it means that that cohort, I think, of stage has uh, has gotten a lot more outside interest from investors flowing in. One of the other things that I think has happened as climate tech has gained uh, more and more interest is that some of the sectors that comprise climate tech had been in the sort of in the desert, so to speak, like they had been existing tech innovation, venture capital sectors that were not so hot that suddenly now, or maybe not suddenly, but like as of late have become very hot again. And that probably has implications for companies that have been around for a while within those sectors, which suddenly have renewed interest. Are you seeing that play out? No doubt. And uh, no less in one of the segments that I grew up in, right? So in agricultural technology, um, ag tech's been around for a long time, but it definitely was not part of clean tech. It was kind of almost like a sister segment and also went through its own doldrum, but it's back strong and better than before. Actually, of the data that Kim and I are tracking at Climate Tech BC, 
our ag tech segment uh, is our most active in terms of the number of deals that we've been tracking. But interestingly, these are lots of businesses that aren't brand new. So they're not coming through from pre-seed and seed and A. We started tracking them after they'd had a quiet period and are now accelerating through very quickly into large Bs through growth fundraises. Think the pivot bios of the world, right? That have been around for quite some time and have a relatively established technology and large team, but have been growing at a steady pace and are now accelerating into unicorn status. And there's many, many more companies like Pivot that are in that ag tech segment where nature-based and agricultural solutions had been quiet for a while, but are now loud again. Another example is um, NCX, right? So previously, Sylvia Terra. Sylvia Terra is a 10-year-old business. Um, those founders have been working on it for a long time. And now that we've hit the climate tech accelerant, they've rebranded, they've expanded their team, and they've got a whole lot more uh, muscle and horsepower behind them with new, awesome employees, talent, customers, and, and definitely media attention. The Interchange is brought to you by Hitachi ABB Power Grids. Energy resilience is important everywhere. Yet imagine living near the Arctic Circle. Reliable power makes daily life possible, and Hitachi ABB Power Grid's battery energy storage system prevents power outages for communities outside Fairbanks. In fact, the innovative system holds the Guinness record for the world's most powerful battery. No matter where you are, energy storage can improve resilience and efficiency, offer greater user availability with smart grid technology, integrate solar or wind to reach your sustainability goals, lower electricity bills by reducing load and peak shaving. It's all achievable with energy storage solutions. Learn more about stacking value with energy storage solutions through ABB Power Grids. Follow the link right there in the show notes. We are also brought to you by Longy. Longy is the world's most valuable solar company with a market capitalization of $8.4 billion. It supplies more than 80 gigawatts of solar wafers and modules worldwide each year, about a quarter of global market demand. Longy's modules lead in efficiency and are validated through rigorous testing at leading independent labs and has multiple top awards from testing agencies. With sustainability front and center, Longy partners with the Climate Group and other sustainability leaders pledging to be 100% powered by renewables by 2028. With Longy products, customers can be sure they're getting technologically advanced, best-in-class solar technology. All right, let's transition to talking about where the money is coming from. So who are the investors who are putting collectively $16 billion into the sector in the first half of this year. Um, at the high level, I guess, to start, how would you characterize the types of investors that we are seeing pop up most frequently as big climate tech investors? Yeah, so in our in our future, we actually put out a chart of um, around 50 investors that had participated in five climate tech deals or more over the last year. And these are, you know, it's, it's interesting to see kind of the breakdown of these investors, whether over what we call specialists versus generalists. So specialists being defined as specifically focusing or having pub publicized a focus in climate um, or within one of the sectors that we mentioned, like energy or mobility. And then generalists being kind of the traditional venture type investors like Sequoia or Andreessen that have been around for decades and have historically inv invested more in software. 
And interestingly enough, interestingly enough, within that, you know, top 50 climate tech investor list, there's a pretty even break between the specialist and generalist investors, which at a high level is a, is a positive signal in terms of there being more generalist and diversity in investors coming into this space and, you know, not having as much scar tissue from kind of the, from clean tech 1.0. Yeah. I think that's super interesting. I, if you had asked me what the split would be amongst those top 50 between specialists and generalists, I would have thought it was weighted much more heavily towards specialists. Not to say that generalists aren't like, it's clear that, um, as we said before, maybe thanks to the wildfires and a million other reasons, like there are many generalists, Silicon Valley type venture capital firms that have stated an interest in climate tech or have just made investments in the space. Uh, so it's not surprising that they're in there, but I'm amazed that it represents half of the top 50. It's it's reflective of the sort of breadth of the coalition of investors in this space right now. And also an indication of why it's so hot, because if you have basically everybody looking at it, whether they are a traditional enterprise SaaS investor in Palo Alto or whether they are a specific climate tech fund, uh, you can see how it's like a great time to be a climate tech entrepreneur. So well said. <laughs> great time to be a climate tech entrepreneur, for sure. Yeah. It also means the syndicates are pretty healthy, right? And and interesting. So um, to have a combination of specialists and generalist is um if i if i was still in the founder seat that would be the type of mix that i was hoping to have on my cap table so you've got folks that can make customer introductions for you and policy loops and help you find really high quality technical talent at the meantime you've got the deep pocketed coffers of um you know these older school bigger firms where hopefully they come along with um all sort of back back end service offerings and um, deep understanding of uh, um, parallels to other markets and other marketplaces, right? And and trends across other industries. So hopefully it's the best of all possible worlds. It also means it's getting more and more healthy and competitive by the day. No question. Um, the other split that I'm interested in is, you know, that we've seen the rise of a bunch of uh, corporate climate funds, so some of the more publicized ones being from big tech companies like Amazon and Microsoft, which have both announced billion-dollar-plus climate tech funds. We've also got the big oil companies, largely all introducing some kind of a new energies fund or something like that. So I'm interested in the split amongst that top 50 between corporate investors versus purely financial investors. Yeah, this is a split that we're also really interested in by, too. And just as a little sneak peek, we're actually going to be doing a more in-depth dive into the into the corporate VCs and what their role is in this market. Um, but from a high level, you know, there's been a lot of corporate net zero commitments within oil and gas, within tech, within industrial sectors. And I think capital now is kind of being matched to, to meet those targets. So looking across all of the investors that we've tracked, around 17% of that number of investors are corporate. So whether that's corporates investing directly off the balance sheet or through corporate venture arms, but it makes up a pretty significant proportion of the, you know, amount of investors that are coming into climate tech. And I think, again, like the split between specialists versus generalists, it provides a lot of the strategic value add that I think is necessary, especially for climate tech companies that have 
to face a lot more valleys of death compared to your typical enterprise SaaS company. So a lot more ability to partner at the earlier stages with these large corporations, especially in the industrial sectors, and actually be able to add strategic value value add from the from the earlier stages. I also think it's, it's I think it's there. I agree with you. There's value. There's a lot of value that the corporate investors bring, and they're a super important part of the ecosystem and often a super important part of the syndicate. It's also in my mind a positive that they represent a minority share of this market, right? There is clear there are clearly a lot of hard-minded financial investors, be they dedicated to climate or not, who are saying this is a generational opportunity for wealth creation in addition to being absolutely necessary if we don't want to burn the planet down. And so we believe this to be a good, prudent use of our LP's capital. Uh, which corporates don't always have to say, right? They're structured differently, but some of them have a strategic mandate over a financial one. You don't want a sector that is built entirely off of that because that you know doesn't doesn't give you the show of strength uh, and the blessing of uh, those who are just in it to make money, which ultimately correlates pretty highly with like impact of a company at scale. So. To close out, I guess the question that I have for for both of you is, so you have in the climate tech VC ecosystem, right? You've got a lot of the investors who are readers and you engage with. We also got a lot of the entrepreneurs. And as we've said, it's a good time to be an entrepreneur in this space. There's no question. Both because capital formation is there and and easier than it was before. You're going to be able to raise capital if you have a credible story and credible technology and a good team. because that will be more available to you all along the way, because the pathways to exit may be clearer, and because there's an increasing recognition of the urgency and need for whatever you're doing, if it's a climate solution. But it's also somewhat of a perilous time, because there are so many new companies getting spun up, and you know diligence timelines are compressed and all of that. How do you think about the lessons that this gives to founders, given all of this explosion in activity and in funding. What should founders be thinking about as they are company forming? Well, firstly, we try and make it easier for them to parse through the noise. So it wasn't long ago that I was in the position myself of raising capital for a business that we would now call a climate tech business. And I spent weeks figuring out who was serious about deploying dollars into the space, in my case, agricultural technology that I was building a business in. Um, And so when Kim and I set out to start Climate Tech VC, we're writing it for those operators and secondly, for the investors. And so we created a product, we call it the running list of Climate Tech VCs. And we update that continuously to hone a list of the most active investors in this space so that founders don't have to go out and do that work one by one themselves. They can get down to business and see who's in market and serious and and start picking up the phone and having conversations and putting that thesis and matchmaking to the test. So um, we hope that's a resource that that folks go check out and find value in. Secondly, I'm going to shoot myself in the foot here a little bit and Shale and Kim, don't don't get at me too much here, but uh, it's worth founders looking deeply in the mirror and thinking about what kind of business am I trying to build? Is this a billion dollar outcome that I'm going to shoulder for the next 10 plus years? Um, Venture capital is a very special type of drug and it puts you on a special path. And 
I'd argue that's not for everybody. And that's certainly not for every business model that, um, you know, we see that I see coming across our desk in the form of venture capital pitch decks. So we, we write a newsletter. It's on the nose. It's called Climate Tech Venture Capital. But I'll be the first to say that not every business that's going to support us in this climate technology transition needs to raise venture capital funding. And in fact, we're going to put our money where our mouth is as journalists and, and start writing more about alternative forms of capital that are beneficial for really driving the right cost of capital and sizing for all of these different cl- climate technology businesses. Yeah. Even though venture capital is abundant, it is still expensive capital. There is no question. So if you have access to cheaper capital to fund whatever you need to fund, it is worth a serious look. It always will be, I think. Kim, lessons for founders from you? Yeah, I think specific to the venture market, um, you know, it's a it's a hot market right now. I think, you know, climate tech founders have gone from being beggars to being almost too full with with capital. And it's now up to them to be able to right size their rounds. So when you think about raising a round, especially at the earlier stage, you want to set valuation, which is really the expectation for what your company is going to do in the future. You want to set that valuation bar not too high, but not too low so that you can outperform the milestones and the expectations needed to get to the next stage. So the problem, not necessarily the problem, but the word of caution now is that because there's so much capital coming into the space, it's really easy for founders to raise outsized rounds, which means that from an ownership perspective, because venture capitalists want to maintain a certain percentage of ownership, that means that they have to get to higher valuations. And so right now that seems all in gray. You have a ton of capital, you have a really great valuation, everyone wants to work for your company, it's all over the news. But then if you can't reach you know, that certain revenue or ARR target or that certain manufacturing milestone by the next round, you're stuck in this weird maybe purgatory period where you have to either do a bridge round or wait it out until you can you know, get to that next stage and then maybe you run out of capital in between then. So there's a lot of dynamics at play outside of just you know, wanting to raise a ton of capital when you can in this moment. And I think those are areas that founders should be a little bit more cautious about is thinking through the next stage and how you want that valuation to be aligned. Notoriously, what everybody said about clean tech 1.0, uh, and then, you know, I think many folks say about climate tech too, is everything takes longer than you think it's going to. I mean, this is true. This is like a truism in all businesses, right? In all startups, but particularly true in these sectors because they tend to be big industrial sectors, generally slow moving, you know, heavily regulated and so on. And so, you know, thinking about what what happens if everything takes a year, two years, three years longer than I think it's going to to materialize, or if it takes me that much longer to get my first customer or so on. In some ways, that is a, that's a push for founders to raise more capital now, right? You have more money for a rainy day. On the other hand, it is also a reason to be cautious about, uh, you know, taking the highest valuation you could possibly achieve today because you have to, you have to earn into it. Um, so it is, you know, it's both a heady time for entrepreneurs and a time that like, there's never been a better time to start a climate tech business than, than today. Uh, but it's also like requires a lot of thought and I will say a lot of understanding of what is happening in the space. And so reading things like climate tech VZ can, can help you get there. 
So with that, thank you, Sophie and Kim, for for coming on. I think we'll do it again. Um, I'm interested to see how this data evolves over the next uh, six months, the next year. Kimberly Zhu and Sophie Purdom are the co-founders and co-authors of the Climate Tech VC newsletter, which you should absolutely go subscribe to immediately. Um, also on the Climate Tech VC website, there's a really valuable jobs board, which has all sorts of cool, interesting roles in, in climate tech world, as well as an investor database that they alluded to, which is valuable if you're raising capital in the space. Kim is also an investor at EIP with me, uh, and Sophie is an angel investor as well as does a ton of interesting work on ESG uh, financing, climate and innovation in the back end. So what did you think of today's episode? Uh, give us a rating, give us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Let us know what cuts of the Climate Tech VC database you'd like to see. We could always follow up with more as time goes on. You can find us on Twitter, tweet at us at, at Interchange Show or via email at contact at postscriptaudio.com. The Interchange is produced by Postscript Media. Our producers are Daniel Waldorf, Dalvin Abuaji, and Stephen Lacey. I'm Shale Khan, and this is The Interchange. <laughs> <laughs>